Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me as always is my co-host, who always restores my faith in my limited intelligence, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I'm doing great, Andy. How are you doing today? You know, I'm swell. We're doing 101 Dalmatians today from 1996. And if you loved 101 Dalmatians, the animated movie from the 1960s, you can always Check out our season two, episode two, where we cover the original movie. If you're interested, you should take a listen. And we have a guest star today. We do. Our guest star is Noelle Nori, whose fiction has appeared in Crack the Spine, The Right Launch, and The Good Life Review. She was longlisted for the Master's Review 2021 Novel Excerpt Contest and has also received an honorable mention from Glimmer Train Press. She holds an MFA in writing from the Nasland Mann Graduate School of Writing at Spalding University. Welcome, Noelle. Hi, thank you so much for letting me come on. I'm super excited to talk with you guys. I'm super glad that you picked this movie. Tell us a little bit about why you picked 101 Dalmatians. Well, I was, I think, in the exact target demographic when this movie came out. <laughs> so I have vivid memories of it from my childhood, and it's been really fun to rewatch it and remember some of my favorite lines. I love that. Some key facts to set the stage here for us. The 101 Dalmatians franchise is, as we've said before, based on a 1956 novel for children by Dodie Smith. And the novel was originally published as a serial novel in Woman's Day magazine as The Great Dog Robbery. In that book, Perdita isn't Pongo's woman. Perdita is a rescue dog who serves as a wet nurse to the puppies. So there's Pongo and then there's Mrs. And I like the way they changed this up, actually. So in 1996, about the time of the film's release, the BBC turned Dodie Smith's book into a full cast musical audio drama. If you can get your hands on it, highly recommend it. It's super fun, especially if you have young people in your house. In this version, Cruella has a husband. Perdita has her own story with a dog named Prince. And Cruella has a white Persian cat who has quite the story to tell. So you should definitely check that out. So Larry referenced this in our season two episode, his rather glorious pitch. There's a sequel to the Dodie Smith book written in 1967 entitled The Starlight Barking. So one day all the dogs wake up to find all living things besides dogs can't be wakened. Dogs have supernatural powers. They don't experience hunger. They don't thirst. They communicate via thought waves, which I sort of think dogs do that anyway. And they can swoosh. So swooshing means that they can travel at this great speed over ground, sort of like the bed and bed knobs and broomsticks. And the dogs also have an opportunity to murder Cruella, but they don't take that opportunity because she's moved on from an obsession with fur to plastics. So she's no longer a threat. I mean, (laughs) it's only a matter of time, dogs. This is preemptive. Take (laughs) her out. Take her out now. You will regret it. (laughs) So the dogs are given this opportunity to leave the earth to avoid a nuclear disaster by Sirius, the Lord of the Dog Star. But ultimately, Pongo and the other dogs choose their loyalty to humankind. All stray dogs are rescued and able to live out their lives at Battersea Dogs and Cats Home in London, which is actually a real place. And perhaps the one day the dogs will join Sirius. But for now, they're content with their humans and everything goes back to normal and humans are none the wiser. So it is 
wild. <laughs> it is it is amazing that this sequel has not been made is insane. If you want more details about it, go back to our earlier podcast just to get a sense of just how cray cray this is. And I do want to point out Dodie Smith is an amazing author, big fan of We Capture the Castle. She's great. But lest you think we're in the weeds here, the writer of the live action 101 Dalmatian sequels, the late, great John Hughes. So John Hughes of The Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, Home Alone, those films. Malcolm Johnson, who's a movie reviewer with the Hartford Current, made the argument that Hughes stays pretty close to the 101 Dalmatians original film. This movie reminds him of the Hughes low comedy Baby's Day Out, which is a movie where an adorable infant outsmarts his kidnappers. This movie seems closer to Home Alone than to any of the original source material, which seems pretty rich. So I mean, the Baddens are pretty much like the wet bandits from Home Alone, I think, in this. Sure. And I think a lot of reviewers said that, including Roger Ebert, my old friend. But $67 million budget for this film, (sighs) and it grossed $320.7 million in theaters. So did okay. I mean, for sure did okay. This was my first time watching this movie, but I know that there are plenty of families that have watched this movie over and over and over again. We're going to do something a little unorthodox for our podcast, which is normally this is the part where we break down the plot. We figure out what the inciting incident is, what the climax is, what the Manish Tana of this movie is. But when Andy said that this movie is pretty similar in terms of its comparison to the original. If you boil it down, the plot is identical. We start off with Roger and Anita meeting. They fall in love. The dogs fall in love. The puppies come. Cruella has the bed and kidnap the puppies. And then we move to the story of will the puppies and the dogs be reunited and with Roger and Anita? If you were just to strip away everything to the plot, it's identical. And I just don't know that we're going to get a lot of benefit from comparing these plot lines. It's the same. If you want that, go back to our previous episode. It'll do the job. What we thought would be more useful when taking a look at this adaptation is to focus on the sequences in this movie that have changed. What do we get out of taking 101 Dalmatians and moving it from the animated space to the live action space. So we'll start by talking about how the Manish Tana is different. And it's not very different. There are a couple of little changes here, but essentially we meet Roger, we meet Anita, we meet Pongo, we meet Cruella right? That happens. And then we move into this identical sequence. I mean, it's not exactly identical, but Pongo meets Perdita and and is bringing Roger to Anita. This sequence structurally is the same as the original, but there's a big difference here. And the big difference is there's no narration. In the original movie, we are privy to Pongo's thoughts. Pongo is like, Oh, you know, it's spring, a dog's thoughts turn to love. I'm going to find someone for me. I'm going to find someone for my pet, Roger. I'll hook him up and it'll hook me up. We'll be wingmen for each other. 
This version works a little bit differently because there's no narration. And I was wondering what you guys think about that. Is this a good choice, a bad choice? How do you feel about how this opens up? I think overall it's positive because I recall from the previous podcast, the narration didn't really add anything to the movie or to the storyline. And it was also a lot more telling versus showing. So by removing the narration here, I think you align much more with showing rather than telling. And it also sets up the fact that the dogs won't talk in this movie. That was like the big question in my mind was, are the dogs going to talk or not? So that gets answered pretty quickly because you don't have Pongo narrating. I agree with you. And maybe, Andy, you might be the dissent on this. But my feeling here is in this opening sequence of Roger and Anita meeting, I don't have any questions about what's running through Pongo's mind. He's a boy dog. He sees a girl dog he likes. I did like in the first one, there was a little joke where Pongo referred to Roger as his pet. But in terms of storytelling, I'm not lost here without the narration. I completely understand what's going on with these dogs, with these humans. I didn't feel like I missed it. Andy? The only thing that I think we miss is figuring out whose story this is. I hate when the alarm clock hits the dog on the head, and I know that's CGI, but I still have to (laughs) sit with it for a hot second. I feel like this is Pongo's story, but I don't see, because there is no narration, I don't get a a good sense of what's going on between Pongo and Perdita anymore. His arc changes. So if we don't have narration, it's hard for us to determine what his wants are and what his needs are. And so then his arc is somehow diminished there. Andy, did you worry about the dogs more because they were live dogs than the animated dogs? You talked about how the dog got hit on the head with the clock I saw your face. You are worried that they really hit a dog on the head with the clock, even though you know CGI was used. Right, 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 right. Does it raise the stakes? It does raise the stakes because they are real dogs. On the other hand, you know, in both movies, they're adorable puppies. So I'm thinking, trying to think about this from terms of, you know, how a child might view it. I love the physical comedy of this movie. It's absolutely wild. And what befalls folks is generally deserved in most cases. But again, I think for children... In a family movie, I keep thinking of movies like Babe or Air Bud, where we get to hear the dogs talk a little bit. And I don't know, I kind of miss it. So I want us to do a little survey here. And Noel, I'm going to ask you to go first. Oh, gosh. Okay. It's not a hard question because it's your opinion. You can't be wrong. <laughs> Only I can be wrong. Okay. So do you like the live action dogs or the cartoon dogs better? Oh, gosh. Uh, On the one hand, it's almost like comparing apples to oranges a little bit. Sure. I think if I had to pick one, I love dogs so much. So I love seeing a real live puppy (laughs) moving around. Although it definitely does sort of, you know, it raises the stakes as a viewer. It's more emotionally scary. (laughs) I think I would have to land on the side of the real puppies. I just want to reach through the screen and, you know, hug them all. (laughs) And see, for me, I love the animated pups more than I like the live action pups. And I don't know that that is a thing that would always be true. It's true in this movie. And it may just be that the CGI tricks they do with the dogs, they haven't mastered the craft the way that 
the animation craft had been mastered when the original movie comes out. But I find the original animated dogs more expressive than what, what the CGI dogs are capable of doing here. I think I love them both for different reasons, but I, I'm with you in that when the dogs don't talk, talking is what makes them adorable in some ways. We get to see more of a personality than just, you know, their names. There's a difference here, too, because while I don't need the narration, but going into Pongo's mind and hearing his thoughts, I did kind of want him to talk babe style to Perdita as soon as like Roger and Anita were out of frame. I am willing to play with this movie by the rules of Toy Story, which is if there is a kid in the room, a human in the room, the toys can't talk. I would be willing to have 101 Dalmatians that did that. So while I don't miss the narration, I do feel like we miss out by not having the dogs talk, by not having the puppies talk. It was very hard for me to tell the difference between the various puppies, except for the one that kept peeing and therefore must be Whizzer. <laughs> <laughs> but visually, like it just wasn't distinct enough for me. It was a sea of puppies. Right. And listen, that's the best way to drown is a sea of puppies. <laughs> I had that thought multiple times watching this movie. <laughs> it's not a bad way to go. <laughs> so here is my verdict. This is one of the things I learned from this is if we're making the switch from animation to live action, we need to do it in such a way that the live action is showing off what we can do in live action that we wouldn't be able to do in the animated space. And I feel like that gets shown off at the beginning of this movie when we have Pongo taking care of Roger, making breakfast, getting the food together, making sure that Roger is up and ready to go to work. Like, that is impressive live action and maybe wouldn't be as impressive in animation. And I think... Going forward, as we look at live action adaptations, that's the right question. It's not what would it look like live action, but what do we get to do live action that we couldn't do in an animated space? Roger's job is different in this one. In the original movie, he was a musician struggling to find a hit. And as you know, he eventually does find his hit inspired by Miss DeVille. He, he sings Cruella DeVille, which is still my go-to karaoke song. <laughs> Listener, why I am best avoided at karaoke night is I, I insist on doing Cruella DeVille and not well. <laughs> Practiced, but still not good. But in this version, we have sort of a subplot. Instead of a musician, he's a computer game designer. He's designing a game around Dalmatians. The Dalmatians, by the way, are the animated Dalmatians from the original movie, which is a nice little homage. And he's trying to sell his video game. And I'm wondering what you guys think of that. Is that a good choice? Does it create a storyline for you? What are you thinking? I think it modernizes it. And I think it also brings in an element that we don't see otherwise, which is a human child. <laughs> the only time that a human child appears is in that meeting where the kid is testing the video game out. So I think it puts a child in a center of influence that otherwise isn't there in this movie. This sort of follows in the vein of other John Hughes films where kids are really pretty empowered and kids are smart. 
For me, there's no real dramatic question with this video game story. Like, Roger's like, how am I ever going to find a villain to be the villain in my video game? And it is a no-brainer. We've <laughs> met the villain of this movie. Well, he hasn't there met him not- yet, right? Yeah. Yes. Anita's, well, she, he hasn't met her. Right, But right. Anita's met her, and the kids in the audience have met her. And we see over the course of the movie, he tries out several different villains. But you would have to be a year and a half old or younger to not see where this is going, to worry, I wonder if he's going to find a villain to be, who Who could it possibly be? Will he turn Nanny into a villain in his game? Is Anita going to be the villain? Oh, it's not really a question. It's not even really a storyline. I say boo. And the worst crime is this. Because he's a video game designer, <laughs> we don't get to hear the song Cruella DeVille till the credits. Oh, that's the crime, huh? That is a crime. A pop version of Cruella DeVille. Which is Give really me good, that. actually. Give me a remake of Cruella DeVille with the new spin. Or, you know what I would really do here? Is I would have him be a musician and he figures out early, I want to write a hate song about Cruella because that's the kind of guy I am. I meet someone I don't like and I immortalize them in song. But that throughout the movie, he's trying different styles. So we get like a Cruella DeVille samba and we get a Cruella DeVille jazz and then like a Cruella DeVille rap, which should be cringy. Like, my name is Cruella and I'm here to say I want to kill dogs in a major way. We have to have him liking oh my gosh i'm stuck on your rap i'm sorry (laughs) part of anita's problem is she isn't aware that cruella is terrible she isn't completely aware of that even though because she doesn't see the terribleness of cruella she has to stand up for cruella and then it dawns on her that cruella is the one's going to kill the puppies i mean we see that there's a lot of dramatic irony in this and i think it's because if the kids discovered it at the same time we did. This would be an awful horror movie, right? Let's switch to Anita and Cruella a little bit. Yeah. I'm going to say something, and maybe you'll disagree. When we first meet Cruella, when she sees Anita and loves Anita's designs, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I love this woman. Even though her name is Cruella, right? Like when she comes in, it's almost a Cinderella story where she sees one of her artists sketching and is like, this one's got the talent. She's the one who fits the glass slipper. I'm going to elevate her and bring her into my office and say how, how wonderful she is. I totally agree with that. I got the impression and it's not, it's not overt, but I think it's implied that this might be the first time that Corella has singled Anita out in this way for this like special meeting or perhaps any of her designers. So I think it contributes to the stakes of this this day. And I know we were talking before about the Manishina being different from the last one. And so I think that kind of contributes to why today is a bigger deal than any other day. Because it's the day that Corella kind of calls Anita into her office and pays her these compliments and is showing concern that she might leave. So it sets a lot of things up. It does set a lot of things up. And the thing I love about this movie, as opposed to the last one, is Anita actually has a personality. She does. We see her with a job. We see her with a want. Anita wants to please Cruella, but she also says, well, I suppose if somebody came on the scene, I would want that. And we would see how this fit in with our wants, right? That's huge. I think Cruella sets up a loyalty test for Anita 
And Anita passes that loyalty test initially. She says, now that I'm elevating your designs, other companies are going to see what you do and they're going to try to steal you away from me. And Anita's response is, oh, I would never leave you, Cruella. I would never leave you for another job. I might leave you for a man and to have a baby. I would never leave you. And you watch Cruella's face on this, because I'm going to throw out, this is the only scene where I think we can find subtle nuance in what Cruella is doing. She's going to be taking it to an 11 for the rest of the movie. And I love that. But at first she's like, yes, Anita, you and I are the same, right? You're, you're going to stay with me. I think Cruella is offering her legitimate mentorship here. And I have to say, when Cruella was like, why should you give up your job just because you have a husband and a child? That's ridiculous. Why would you do that? I was like, is Cruella a feminist here? Because I think she's making some good points. She is making good points, but it's for her own benefit. So Anita can want things. I mean, a good feminist would say, well, Anita can want what she wants, right? And if that happens to be a traditional mold, then that's fine. Sure, sure, but Cruella's sure, sure. like bending that to make it about her and what she gets out of the relationship. It's not for Anita's benefit. It's for Cruella's benefit. She's evil, but I feel like she has a point that Anita has turned it into a binary without considering that there's like a range of options right. available to her. And I'm not upset with what Anita ultimately chooses, although I do think it's a mistake to have 101 dogs. I feel like that choice is one that really (laughs) should send you straight to your therapist as to how many dogs will fill the hole in your heart. I would argue that Anita is actually trying to carve out a middle ground path and Corella's the one who rejects it because when Corella comes to visit Anita and Roger, Anita says, but you're getting my sketches. Like she's still working. She's, you know, working remotely, working from home, which, you know, back then not many people did. And Cruella, it's not good enough for her. So I think Cruella sees it more of an either or than Anita would like it to be. Cruella believes she owns Anita. I think that is at Mm -hmm. at the bottom line. Anita is her employee and therefore Cruella owns her. And her hostility to Roger And to a lesser degree, the dogs, but mostly to Roger, whose name she refuses to remember, is how dare you try to take Anita from me? I enjoy that dynamic here. I think this is something that we wanted when we talked about the animated movie, is that we wanted this to be a little bit more triangular, the Cruella, Anita, Roger relationship. I'm not saying Cruella has romantic feelings towards Anita, but it's still a triangle between the three of them, where both of them want Anita, but only Roger will ever really have her. One of the things about her, you know, Roger Ebert said that she looks so clean cut, you suspect she smells of clean sheets, right? She has no (laughs) clue. She has no clue that she's being manipulated. She's really just that sweetheart trying to do her best work, you know, and doesn't realize that somebody could be that sinister and cruel. And she grows to understand that, Indeed, people can be that way. So I think I think she's good. And when she stands up to Cruella, I think it's it's pretty delicious. What other changes do we want to talk about? Because I, th- I think we have a couple more on our list here. Well, and I mentioned it earlier, but I think the physical comedy of the movie is something that I think is really awesome. I will agree here. I know it's a twist. <laughs> this is something I've learned from The Three Stooges, which is 
When the Three Stooges are live action, they're amazing. But there have been a number of attempts by Hanna-Barbera over the years to make an animated Three Stooges. And in one, they have superpowers. They're the robotic stooges. It's terrible, guys. Don't watch it. Right. But the point here is watching physical slapstick comedy in animation is not as fun. It's not as compelling. The bit where the baddens are trying to climb over the electric fence. What befalls folks in this movie is really reserved. I mean, when Cruella goes to pull the tail the pig leaves out for her and then the pig lands on her with all the hay and trimmings and she gets completely barnyarded in that. It's fantastic. It's so fun. Even Roger and Anita being pulled along by their dogs, which is kind of ridiculous because I mean, all they have to do is hit the brake and the dog's going to stop. It's going to stop everything, but it's fun. It's, we know that this movie is going to be silly. It's going to be a romp. And we're going to just enjoy the heck out of it. And I love those kinds of movies. Well, let's talk a little bit about the addition of some characters. So we see Alonzo and Frederick as characters. We haven't seen them before. Why do we think they're there? We've talked about Herbert. We've added Herbert, the kid. We've talked about him a little bit, the video game reviewer. Why do you think we have Alonzo and Frederick? So refresh us, which one's Alonzo and which one is Frederick? I think they're interchangeable. They are Cruella's butlers, I guess, or her manservants. Yeah, Alonzo seems like he's a receptionist, but yet also her personal butler, because you see him at home attending to tea. And Frederick, I I was had had trouble like pinpointing what his exact role is. I came up with maybe he's somewhat high up in the company because she asks him, can we afford to remake the line? And He says yes, and that it'll cost millions. So he seems to have more knowledge of the business than perhaps Alonzo does. But again, he's he asks what kind of sycophant she would like him to be. So (laughs) he clearly is easily controlled by her. And I think they could be combined into one character. You probably wouldn't lose much if you did that. But I think they also kind of serve as a contrast to show that she can control everyone around her but she can't control Anita. At least, you know, eventually she cannot. I agree. I I think this is a masterclass too in crafting subtext with dialogue. When you say things like, what kind of sycophant would you like me to be? And the subtext there, it just drips. It's so good. Just so good. I know this movie came out years and years before The Devil Wears Prada comes out, but there is a part of me- Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think rightfully, that conflates the way Cruella and her office runs. Like, Cruella has lunch with Miranda Priestley weekly. There's the idea here that in addition to the hunting and killing of animals for sport, Cruella also emasculates men around her for sport. They're all her trophies. They're all her accessories. In the same way that she wears fur, I think she also wears men servants. She delights in the breaking of men. And I think that's a big part of why she hates Roger so much is Roger represents a man that she has no power over and therefore cannot break. Let's dig into characters a little bit more. We've got Cruella played by Glenn Close and I think masterfully. And I'm not the only one who jotted this down in my notes. Roger Ebert, for one, of uh, notably, sees Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard in this role. And apparently there's a film remake of Sunset Boulevard in the works with Glenn Close starring as Norma Desmond. And she did the role on Broadway in 1994. 
So she's pretty close to that character. So that makes sense to me. What do we think of this Cruella versus say the animated Cruella? Are they the same? Are they different? Well, I think definitely by giving her a clear relationship with Anita and a relationship of, you know, she's her employer, you've definitely raised the stakes and you have a lot of questions answered, I think, that we had in the original movie of why Anita feels the need to be nice to her or even just why she shows up in the first place in the original movie. She just seems to come out of nowhere. So in this version, it's very clear what their relationship is. I also got a ton of Miranda Priestly vibes. And I actually wondered, since Devil Wears product came out after this movie, I wonder if they patterned any of it off of her because you have Devil and Deville and you have even just her look of like the black and white hair with the streak, Mm -hmm. the way that she enters the film where you don't see her face, you see everything around her, you see like other aspects of her body and you see people scurrying around her and then you get the big reveal where she turns her head. I saw a lot of those similarities as well. Agreed. Yeah, I, I agree that the power struggle there is missing in the first film. I think they were friends from college or something. Yes. Sometimes when people are just terrible, you cut them off, especially if your spouse doesn't like them or whatever. But we never see really why Anita feels so attached to Cruella. And I think that power struggle of her being her boss, it does solve that problem for sure, Noelle. Good catch. I would throw out, I feel like this performance, I think what Glenn Close is doing is she's out-tuning the tune in a sort of Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom sort of way. I feel like this live-action Cruella is tunier than the cartoon Cruella DeVille. The wild, maniacal laughter. The scene where she's driving the car and she sticks her head out the window as she's driving. Everything here, she is at an 11. She's at a 9 at the beginning of the movie, and she's at an 11 for the rest of the movie. It is such a heightened, animated performance. It is a joy to watch. I think the costume designer in this film deserves just all the kudos in the world. I think the gloves with the fingernails on them are just... It's so good. Like, this movie's so good. And I stand by this. She would look great wearing those dogs. I said it in the last movie, (laughs) but even more so, even more so, it would make a statement when she walks out wearing those dogs, people would be like, that's terrible, but you look amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I don't think people should... Should wear fur, but anyway, uh, ever. Sure, sure. No, no, I'm with you on that. I'm, I'm saying take the moral want, side out of it. From a fashion standpoint, she's in. She is uh, in. That's funny. Let's talk about Pongo and Perdita. Who? Yeah, exactly. Right? The dogs. I think I'd remember if there were dogs in this movie. What? I miss them. I really, mm. really, really miss them. I just don't know. I miss Perdita worrying about her puppies and Pongo saying, it's okay, we're going to press on. We're going to help them. We're going to find them. And we see other dogs come in to help. There's an Airedale that helps. There's a bulldog that helps. I think a few others. But because we don't get their inner life, and again, we don't always need, I mean, cinema is visual, right? It's not necessarily talky, but I, I miss that. I'll just say I miss it. I really feel like the limitations of CGI at this period of time when they're making this movie, 
really hurt the performance of the dogs. We have seen in other Disney movies prior to this where CGI was not an option, mm-hmm. that they can get great performances out of animals in these Disney movies. Oh, like that uh, darn cat. You mentioned yeah. that pre-production. Yeah. DC yeah. is fantastic in that. It is a lot of work. You have to get the right take. You have to take care of the animal and what have you. And maybe what happened here is they did the shots saying we're going to fix it in CGI. And when they went to post and put it in CGI, that's where the limitations came. So they didn't take, I'm making this up. I don't know process-wise. I think I would prefer it if Babe style, they t- we went by those Toy Story rules, those Babe rules. They talk when the humans aren't around. But let's say we don't go that way. I think if we were to do the dogs again with the technology that is available to us today, or if we got rid of the CGI entirely and said, we're just going to get good dog actors, we're going to do painstaking takes till we get exactly the expression on the dog's face that we want, I think it would be better. I think it would help. I didn't have a problem with the dog's expressions. I actually thought that they were really well done. And maybe this is probably showcasing my lack of knowledge of any sort of CGI or, or anything like that. But I felt like I could read the emotions fine on the dog's face. So I was okay with it. But <laughs> I can appreciate what you both are saying. I like the classically trained old school Shakespearean dogs who studied at <laughs> Juilliard. That's what I want. I think what I'm saying more than the CGI, more than that, is that I just miss their character. I miss Pongo being the kind of the lead guy in this movie. And so, I don't know. I just well, kind of you know miss what that. I did enjoy about this movie that's different from the original is they give Perdita some agency where she then goes after Pongo in that initial meeting. Yes. Mm, yeah. So they show that she's equally interested and she's going to make something happen <laughs> with Anita and Roger by pulling Anita along. So I love that sort of equal opportunity. <laughs> and Anita goes after Roger, too. You were so sweet to kiss me. That was mouth to mouth resuscitation. <laughs> Which know? he oh. should not do. This is not a CP. When someone goes into water, you don't do mouth to mouth. It doesn't fix everything. I'm sorry, I was a CPR instructor for years. <laughs> CPR is what you do when someone's not conscious, not breathing. It it's is not, not like someone... It's a Stop. joke, Larry. It's a joke. I hate it. <laughs> I noticed that too, and I thought to myself, well, maybe she like passed out afterwards, because you see her pop out of the water and it'd be flustered and everything, but maybe it's possible that after this happened, she just is so overcome and she winds up passing out and he thinks she can't breathe. So he springs into action. She definitely saw it as a rescue. So my dad is a paramedic and I just need to say this because he needs me to say it. Okay. If you don't know enough to do not do CPR on someone who's breathing, don't do CPR. Go get retrained. You are bad at this. You're going to break her ribs. She's going to end up throwing up into your mouth. You need to know what you're doing. It does not fix everything. Anyway, that was my father. (laughs) Special guest on the pod. I was channeling him for this. Well, let's talk about Roger, played by the amazing Jeff Daniels, who I would absolutely watch do anything and have everything he's ever done I've watched. I think he's fantastic. Thoughts about his character? Oh, you don't want mine. You oh, don't go want... ahead. Go ahead. Hit it. All right. This is not me, but I watched this movie with my youngest and with my wife. And 
I kept my mouth shut as we were watching it. And the two of them read my mind and they were like, he's really mean. Did not like him. Did not find him charming. Anita we liked. We all liked Anita. We all liked her. We thought she was a catch. She was a prize. But we were like, she can do better than Roger. Roger has, he's so resistant to liking her when he meets her. He's really mad at Pongo. When she offers sympathy to him for falling in the lake, He's he acts like it's her fault that he fell into the lake. She's like, you're missing a shoe. And he's like, oh, really? Am I missing a shoe? It's like, dude. I get it. She hit him with a brick. She deserved, <laughs> he asked her to hit her with a brick. He says to her, what are you going to do? Hit me with your purse? And then she hits him with his purse. I mean, literally, that, she got something along the She got consent before smacking him with that purse. <laughs> now, now, he didn't know there was a brick in it, but I'm going to say good for you, Anita, taking care to make sure that you're defended. Good. I'm glad you have. If I had a daughter, I'd tell her to keep a brick in her purse, too, in case some guy came out of the pond yelling at you. I did not get mean vibes. I got a little bit of like, and I say this gently, like a little bit of a bumbling idiot, a little bit, almost like a a 'er ne'er-do-well, you know, because he's trying to make a sale. It doesn't go well. He's had a bad day. And now his dog takes him on this crazy ride through the park and he winds up in the lake and then he gets hit. So he's had a really bad day. Not that that's a obviously an excuse for anything, but I don't think that he is mean-spirited or means it in any sort of a way. I think he genuinely is confused there. And he apologizes once he realizes that he mistakenly had her dog and he is very sort of contrite and humble about it. And I think he redeems himself. He gets better. Yeah. I mean, he's got a chip on his shoulder. He's got no money. A kid just handed him his lunch. You know, he's got to appeal to a a 10-year-old to try to salvage his career. He is a child. He makes his dog take care of him. His (laughs) dog makes him breakfast. He his his dog dog chooses that? I don't think so. I don't think so. Roger is a (laughs) man-child who needs to grow up, and he should start making his own dinner. Pongo is, he's asking too much of his dog. That's my feeling. I loved Anita. I didn't get the feeling that he was asking Pongo to do this. I got the feeling that Pongo was doing it out of love and care for his master. Yes, I did too. Let's Um, talk about Anita. Fair enough. (laughs) Anita Campbell Green dearly. I love that her name is hyphenated before she ever gets married. I think that's pretty cool. Or is this her second marriage? I don't know. Most women who get divorced don't. uh, Well, maybe she's widowed. I mean, who knows? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know, but she's well, or she could have had hyphenated parents and could be kept, That's kept also her possible. last name. And so, yeah. yeah, it's just an interesting detail because, you know, it's in the movie and unexplained. I like the way, you know, you brought this up earlier that she pursues him more than he pursues her. I think she is genuinely kind and empathic and doesn't want to hurt Cruella's feelings. I feel like there's this sense that obviously Anita is bullied by Cruella, but Anita's not so much concerned about what is Cruella going to do to me. It really feels like in those scenes, Anita's like, Cruella, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but we want to keep the puppies. Well, Jolie Richardson, I think, does a great job with this part. My favorite part with her is when she finally stands up to Cruella, finds her voice, shakes a little and says, Cruella, the puppies are not for sale. 
you know, she says it, not Roger, yeah. not nanny, yeah. not she says it herself. I think that's awesome. And she has the most to lose. So it's, it's right mm-hmm. that she said it. I, yeah. Agreed. agreed she gets fired all, after that. That's a great point. The first time she stands up, she loses not everything, but the entire relationship crumbles. She basically gets handed what 75, well, at the time, $15,000. To just say, here's puppies, and that would have changed their lives. Because at this point, it seems like Anita's the breadwinner of this household. I would have so many problems. Look, I'm not a dog person. I feel every time one of my friends has dogs that have puppies, and they're like, we can't take care of all the puppies. We have to find them homes. I know their hearts are breaking every time they do it. My heart would break. How heartbreaking that is. And yet, on the same token, they're going to have 17 dogs in that house. (laughs) It's a wild time while they're little, but then they get to be at a place where it's like, yeah, it's time. It's time for you to find your own way in life. I think it's a callback to the scene where Anita and Roger are talking, you know, have just met. They're sitting by the fire and they're talking and Anita says, I don't think I could bear to live with a broken hearted Dalmatian. She knows that giving away the puppies would break Pongo and Perdita's hearts. So (laughs) she's to keep them because she knows how sad that would make them. Is this a movie that just teaches us to spay and neuter our pets? Because that's what I got out of this. <laughs> that's not a bad thing. That's what I learned. You know who I thought was great was Nanny. Joan Plowright. She's great. When she fights the Baddens, that was mm-hmm. the most home alone this movie got for me. But I thought that was a great sequence. She was given as good as she was getting, maybe more so in that early interaction with them. I thought mm-hmm. she was fantastic. I thought that was another place where if you're going to go live action, you have to top what you did in the animation. I think that sequence with Nanny is that sequence. How they can afford to hire Nanny when I could not tell you the economics behind that, but sure. Nanny was Anita's nanny too, right? Yeah, what I got from it. I also got the, that she was like retired and kind of a family friend and came to help. In a family movie, you don't always have to explain the economics of everything. (laughs) I was thinking that too. And I was thinking, okay, well, maybe Roger has like, now we call them side hustles or something, but he has like other jobs that he does to support himself while he tries to make this big sale because designing video games is really his passion. So maybe he has other things that he does for money. I have prepared on Outlook a spreadsheet where I've broken down the costs of having 17 puppies and a nanny in a townhouse when one of you has lost your job and the other one hasn't sold. And it's stark. It's stark. You really need a lot of government intervention in that particular scenario. But okay, fine. If you want to say kids don't care, that's fine. Well, Cruella alludes to the fact that they're living rather meagerly. I'm like, you know, they're not doing too bad. Like, no, I would be like, okay. That like, would be a fortune in London. Like, I'm sure that is not. You know, in, in a place where you can see the river and you can kind of see Buckingham Palace near there. Those are pretty good digs, I think. So I guess you can't argue with that. Maybe they borrow against the house. They inherited the house and they're constantly borrowing money. That's it. I've cracked it. Uh, let's talk about Jasper and Hugh Laurie and Horace and Mark Williams. Again, great slapstick here. My favorite line in this movie is when he talks about, she says that you win the gold, silver, and bronze for idiocy or there's this beat and he goes, who wins the gold? And you know, it's him. (laughs) And you know, it's Horace wins the gold. He really wants it. That's (laughs) 
So great. So great. It's his moment of triumph. Absolute favorite line in this movie. It's so good. I think their relationship works the same way that it worked in the movie, which is that on paper, Jasper is the smarter of the two of them, but actually Horace figures stuff out that Jasper ignores. There's one part where Horace goes, I think that dog knows we've got the puppies in the bag. And Jasper's like, oh, yeah, of course, because dogs always, always know that. Or another place when they're near the sheep and he's like, I think the puppies might be hiding. And Jasper's like, oh, you idiot. Pup- yeah, that's what puppies do. They hide. And your favorite Horace line was the Olympics one. My favorite one is where Jasper prepares Horace for meeting the Skinner. And he says, listen, <laughs> you're going to see a scar <laughs> on this man. Do not look at the scar. Do not talk about the scar. That is the only thing you need to remember. That's it. Just that. Don't look at the scar. Don't talk about the scar. They open up the door and Horace goes, oh my God, look at the scar. What happened to you? That, <laughs> One moment, the door closes. You hear the, like, the that knocking is him out. So great. great. <laughs> that is great. That is a great uh, moment in this movie. Speaking of Skinner... What do we think about that guy? So creepy. I think they did a really good job, though, with kind of giving him the backstory of, you know, how could somebody kill and skin puppies of you find out that he was attacked by a dog and that's why he can't talk. So not that that's a reason or excuse because it's still totally horrible, but I thought that was a good strategic move, I suppose. (laughs) The scene where he pulls out his tools. Did you guys think he was pulling out a casket at first? Yeah, now that you mention it, I, I am recalling. I think it, it was kind of shaped that way a little bit. I don't think I clocked it at the moment, but yeah, you're right. That's probably. Well, <laughs> thankfully, probably we never purpose. see any blood, but we know he got the tiger. We know so. he got the tiger. The ti- and honestly, that's so terrible. When we see her wearing the tiger when he knows they went to the zoo, he has such a sinister presence. There is a part of me that wondered if this movie was leading towards a climax where Cruella's already been defeated, but Skinner, the Skinner, is the one that we need to be worried about. Because the truth of the matter is, Cruella's not going to kill the dogs herself. The life and death moment happens when, in theory, should happen when like Skinner is alone with one of the dogs. It almost happens early on in the house with Lucky. Mm-hmm. Skinner shows up at the house. Lucky is the only dog there. And we think for a moment, he doesn't care that there's not enough dogs to make all the outfits right now. The dog in hand is the one he's going to skin. And if it wasn't for the last minute rescue that keeps Lucky separated from the other dogs for most of the movie in some sort of B storyline that we actually never get to see, Lucky might have bit it there. I would not be surprised if in another draft, there were more sequences with him and that he was the one that kids could laugh at Cruella. They could laugh at Horace and Jasper. They couldn't laugh at him. Yeah. Yeah. He's not, he's not funny. He'd be terrified. Yeah. Cause you bring up a really good point, Aria, that he's ready to kill that one lone puppy, even though it will do nothing for the job overall. And that's just out of viciousness. So yeah. you definitely get the personal vendetta he has. It's not just a job or, you know, like, a money thing. It's viciousness. He was looking forward to this. It isn't just money. It's his passion. His passion yeah. is, is murdering animals. And does he ever really get his? He yeah, he goes though. to jail with the rest of them. Right. And he gets sprayed by the skunk 
But That's true. with the rest of them, although I want to point this out, Cruella would look great in skunk also. That skunk, I was worried for that <laughs> skunk. It's the right coloring. It she is. could pull it off. She could pull oh, it off. Such a good point. Such a good point. Okay, so protagonist problems. Who's the protagonist of this movie? No one. No one. No one is the protagonist in this movie. That is my number one big complaint. I felt in the first one that Pongo was clearly the protagonist. And I argued at the time that maybe Pongo shouldn't be the protagonist. Maybe the puppies should, one of the puppies should be the protagonist. Maybe they should share it in a kind of Finding Nemo sort of way. This Mm -hmm. movie starts us off with Roger and Anita as the protagonists. And it's because the dogs maybe don't talk or the dogs don't really interact with Cruella or that we're spending so much time with all of our human performers that when it finally becomes the dog's story, I'm not mentally with any of them. Every time a human is in the scene, I'm with that human. I'm with Jasper and Horace. I'm with Cruella. I'm with the Skinner in the scene where he's hunting down Lucky. I'm never with the dogs. I don't know. Did you guys feel this was someone's story or one person's story or even a group story? I think the movie's written in sequences and each of the sequences has its beginning, middle and end. And so like you have the point where is Roger going to be a successful video game developer, right? Which is not where the stakes are. No, it's not. But it gets us into the world and it gets us out of the world. Because the dogs don't talk, it's really hard to stay with them. Because at the point where it goes silent, I found myself like checking my phone or, you know, doing things like that. Like when they're doing things, I'm like, oh, this is where they... And I kept waiting for the humans to come on to kind of drive things and keep things going forward. I agree with you both. There's not really a clear protagonist, but I thought, okay, if I had to pick somebody who I think has a slight change, I think it would be Anita. Because that scene where she is talking with Corella in the beginning of the movie, you get the sense that she's maybe longing for love, but she says, I don't have any prospects. It's really not something that's, I think, on her radar necessarily or something that she thinks will come to her even though perhaps this fantasy idea in her head like she could see herself down the line wanting that and then she does meet Roger and then she does have to stand up to Cruella I think she's the one who has the most to lose in this movie because she loses her job and then at the end of the movie Roger turns to her to get her okay for taking in all these puppies it's kind yeah. of her call. So if there had to be one, I'm kind of landing on Anita. Okay. <laughs> Even though it's not a super strong arc or anything like that, it's maybe more implied than anything else, but I could see that. I'm going to suggest a change here. And I think both of you are going to be on board with it immediately. So the climax of this movie is actually not a showdown between Cruella and the dogs. And not a showdown between Cruella, Roger, and Anita. But Cruella is in a barn. And like the raccoons and the horse and the cow and all the other barnyard animals take down Cruella, which is the sign for me that there's a protagonist issue here. We have a bunch of characters who are arguably the protagonist of this movie. It is not these random animals in the barn that should be taking down Cruella and knocking her out. It should be them. But. They set up at the beginning 
that Anita has a brick in her purse. When she sees it should be, Anita comes to the rescue. Cruella's about to get the dogs, and Anita pulls out her purse and hits Cruella with it and knocks Cruella into the mud. That's genius, Larry, because that, that, that brick idea. never gets Chekhov's brick. It never gets paid off <laughs> the way we I, want it to, right? Chekhov has so many different little MacGuffins, according to you and I. But yes, it's Chekhov's brick in a purse. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I love that um, idea. Yeah, that would definitely. We would know this was Anita's journey. At the beginning, Cruella intimidated her. And now Anita triumphs over her. Cruella in the mud as Anita stands above her, pulls her brick out of her purse. Great. Done. That's all I need. I love it. So usually on this show, we do a pitch, but we already did a pitch for 101 Dalmatians. So I thought it would be fun to do a game time. And Larry, you came up with a game that is, I think... Stellar, would you like to introduce your game? All right. So we are here on The Dating Game. Our contestant tonight is Cruella DeVille. And each of us are hoping that maybe she can find partnership with some other Disney character and see, like, if it's a match. And folks listening at home, when we're done with this game, come to our Facebook page and let us know which one of us you think set up Cruella with the best possible date. And I promise you, I will spend all of my fictional money to make that date happen. <laughs> or you can also give us your ideas for Cruella's date, uh, mystery date. So Totally right. Although then one of the three of us win and I want to win. I'm competitive. <laughs> Andy, Noel, do do either one of you want to go first? I have a backup in case one of you takes mine. Who wins the gold? I also have a backup. Let's let our guest go first. Oh, gosh. Okay. Can I start with who I didn't pick? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Very briefly, because I considered him, but he has has a big flaw. So initially, I was going to pick Gaston because I thought – He's very concerned about his appearance, his looks. I thought they would be attracted to each other physically. I thought they would make a very handsome couple. Could keep her in fur? Yes. But ultimately, I think he's too chauvinistic for her, especially the Corella that we have in the remake. I don't think that would be a long-term match. So then I thought Jafar, because they are Mm. both ambitious in slightly different ways, but he also has a sort of regalness about him, (laughs) terrible regalness, the way he swoops around in those robes of his, I think they could be a really terrible, terrible power couple. You know, I like to imagine a warm candlelight dinner in Agrabah with Cruella and Jafar. I could see it. Mainly because I like to see who Yago would decide would make the best sidekick for him going She wants to kill puppies. (laughs) (laughs) Jafar, I'm getting some red flags here. I'm down with that, Noelle. I think that's awesome. I also like her with another nefarious actor, Long John Silver. Ooh. I think Robert Newton's character in Glenn Close's Cruella would concoct the greatest heist ever seen on land or water because both of them are pretty cunning And I think Long John would be infinitely enamored with Cruella, and Cruella would be the one woman who could make Long John do her bidding. That's what I think. All right. Well, I had a couple of different thoughts here. I considered Mr. Thorndike 
from the Herbie from the Love Bug. Yes. Because he's into cars and someone is buying Cruella cars, but ultimately mm. I don't think it would work. I really wanted to say Alonzo Hawk from both oh. the absent-minded professor and the second Herbie movie, Herbie does something. Herbie rides again. Rides Herbie again. rides again. Herbie somethings again. But ultimately, <laughs> I ended on a protagonist instead of an antagonist. I okay. am setting Cruella de Vil up with Emperor Cusco from the Emperor's <laughs> New Groove because he is all about fashion, style, having everybody in his life kiss his butt. He walks into a room. He's the most important person. I think he walks into the room. Cruella walks into the room. The two of them lock eyes. And then Cusco says to her, you would look fantastic in llama. <laughs> and then we have a, get a fun oh. meal where he is having dinner with Cruella and Yzma. And he suddenly realizes, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? I married my mother figure. That's my pitch is Emperor Cusco. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Well, I think we did a number on this one. I appreciate you, Noelle. Thank you for coming and sharing your thoughts. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, especially about Anita. I think I agree with you completely that Anita got her due in this film. and Maybe, maybe not quite enough, but. More than before. <laughs> much more than before. Much more than before. It's good to give women agency in movies for sure. Here, here. <laughs> All right, Larry, what are we doing next week? Next week, we are doing Remember the Titans, which Ooh. I think is the very first sports movie we've ever done for this podcast. If you count auto racing a sport, right? I Yes, but it's not a very first team sport. Team sport? Will you okay. give me a team sport? Mm, okay. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. That sounds good. Well, if you like what you're hearing, will you do us a favor and share this podcast with another classic or Disney movie fan? And please check out our Once Upon a Disney Facebook page, or you can drop us a line in our mailbag at Once Upon a Disney Podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. My name's Cruella and I'm here to say I want to wear your puppies in a major way. Stop. <laughs> Just stop. <laughs> <laughs>